1: welcome to pot save the world this is tommy vitor in the studio with ben rhodes ready to roll great to have you man we have a packed show today first our friend kelly magsman will dial in to talk about trump's designation to designate the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, a terrorist organization. So you'll hear from her. She's an expert. Then we're going to talk about the Israeli elections, Chinese spies trying to infiltrate Mar-a-Lago, <laughs> personnel issues. The President Sisi visits the Oval Office from Egypt, and then you know Sudan and some of the Arab Spring 2.0 like things we're seeing across Northern Africa, and then Brexit. After that. You'll hear an interview I taped last week with a author named Patrick Radden Keith. He has an incredible, incredible new book out called Say Nothing. It's about the IRA and the troubles in Northern Ireland. It's one of the best books I've ever read, and it also is really relevant today because Brexit could reignite the troubles and the conflict that really destroyed Northern Ireland for a long time. So, pack show, and uh, let's get into it. Okay, the first news item today... Has to do with Iran, so Ben and I decided to get our favorite Iran expert on the line, Kelly Magsman, It's great to have you.
2: Good to be here, guys.
1: So on Monday, Trump designated the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization. It's an interesting timing to do this uh, the day before the yeah. Israeli elections. Yeah. What a coincidence! Tommy. What a coincidence, <laughs> Kelly? <laughs> I guess that, that
3: policy birthday, process Dee Dee. just yeah. really landed right. Yeah, in
1: day that that's amazing how things work out. So. Mags, the IRGC is an arm of the Iranian military, it carries out operations across the Middle East and, and is led by some very bad people. Uh, you're an Iran expert. You've worked for Republicans. You worked for Democrats. I imagine a lot of people have debated this this move previously. Can you tell us like what the IRGC is and what this designation means and if you think it's a good idea?
2: Sure. I mean, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, for folks who don't follow Iran every day is pretty much Basically kind of the elite army and navy and forces of the uh, of the Iranian regime. Uh, it's about one hundred and twenty five thousand or so as estimates. It could be larger. But these guys, these are good guys. Um, in fact, as you know, from our time uh, in the Obama administration, uh, these are a bunch of goons. Um, these aren't good dudes. Um and they're pretty well tied into the Iranian economy as well. So they run a bunch of front companies for the Iranian regime and make a lot of money. So these are, you know, their their sole purpose is to protect the ideals of the revolution, but they're also a deeply corrupt uh, organization within Iran. So they're not great uh, guys. In terms of the move yesterday, you know, from my perspective, it doesn't really do anything materially different. I mean, Hmm. we have sanctioned These guys under previous uh, sanctions authorities in both the Bush and Obama administrations, both under for counterterrorism reasons as well as for counterproliferation reasons. So this new designation. Actually, will have no real material effect. I think, in terms of putting additional pressure, uh, economic pressure on the Iranian regime, it's really, from my perspective, a largely symbolic re- move right now. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, it happened right before uh, the elections in Israel, and it's pretty much a gift to uh, Bibi Netanyahu from Donald Trump. So, yeah. I think it's mostly a symbolic move. Now, that said, I do think that. It imposes a bunch of risks on us that were frankly unnecessary. So, for example, you know U.S. forces in the region could now potentially be targeted by the IRGC in retaliation for for this decision. Um, so that you know potentially puts our forces at risk. This was against the advice of the Secretary of Defense and some of the members and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Cabinet who were worried about this issue. And it also kind of puts some of our allies in a tough spot, especially uh, our Iraqi friends who are working really hard to to stabilize Iraq. And this could potentially be destabilizing for the Iraqis. So, in some ways, it's a symbolic move that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, um, other than just being a rhetorical win for for the president.
1: Yeah. So, Kelly, I mean, the Trump administration, they obsess with Iran in such a weird, disproportionate way that I feel like I'm constantly in this odd position of sounding like I'm defending Iran, even though I'm not. The IRGC, as you said, is is horrible. They do terrible things. Notably, the Pentagon estimates that one in every six combat fatalities in Iraq were attributable to proxy forces that were sponsored by the IRGC. So that is a, a very notable fact. But I mean, I, I guess the question I have for you guys is, do we think that a move like this helps or harms the IRGC's standing within the broader political system?
2: I mean, I, I think it's if, – if the goal of the administration at this point is to put additional economic pressure on the regime or to somehow try to fracture the regime or potentially do regime change, which we all think is a bad idea – I think this is actually potentially a counterproductive move because it's going to solidify uh, support for the hardliners within Iran, especially within the IRGC. Because, frankly, if there was going to be any regime change uh, in Iran, you know, there are going to be elements of the security forces that yeah. would be in play. But I think this actually potentially solidifies them around, yeah. what do around, do you think around about the regime.
3: It? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with Kelly completely. I The two things I'd say are one. You know, if there's some kind of uh, unwinding, unraveling in Iran, perhaps because of the economic pressure, uh, some of the internal pressures, uh, actually the most likely force to emerge from that is Qasem Soleimani is the IRGC. They've, they've got it pretty well wired there. Um, mm-hmm. They've lived under sanctions. As Kelly said, it's not like these guys haven't been sanctioned. They've been sanctioned as an entity. They've been, as individuals, sanctioned. So it's not like they've just lost a bunch of freedom of movement or freedom of action that they had. So they will also know how to play the game of essentially using this to try to pull Iranian politics in a harder line. Mm-hmm. And the second point that, that concerns me about this designation is, I don't know what you think, Kelly, but the only rationale I can see behind the direction the administration has gone it's, is they're trying to to Iran almost into a conflict. Mm-hmm. That's what this feels like to me. It's like they're going to squeeze and squeeze and push and push and push every button that they can. They want Iran to stop complying with the nuclear deal. (laughs) Keep in mind, Iran has thus far continued to comply with the JCPOA. It's almost like they're looking to try to push the Iranians so far in a corner that they then lash out and do something like the Iran deal or or launch some attack against uh, our forces that can spiral very quickly into conflict, right? So my, my concerns are double. It's 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 both, what does this do inside of Iran? You saw Rouhani come out, you know, they designated CENTCOM as a terrorist organization yesterday in a kind of whataboutism tit for tat. That's not the normal orientation of the Iranian political leadership. That's a reflection that the Iranian political leadership has to circle their wagons in their system. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's how their system operates, uh, that if if this kind of shot is taken at them, everybody rallies uh, behind the flag and Mm -hmm. and that strengthens the IRGC. So uh, that concerns me. And then the other thing, again, that concerns me is that the administration is just trying to press every button they can to to get an escalation.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with Ben. I mean, I think, you know, from my perspective, it's not really this move that's necessarily concerning. It's the cumulative effect of all of the decisions that the administration is making. And what's weird to me is that I don't really know that Donald Trump is like itching to go to war with Iran. I'm not sure that it's a winning issue for his base. And so he's, but he's surrounded by a bunch of people yeah. who are, like, as you said, obsessed, right, with this issue. And so I don't think even he realizes, maybe I'm giving him too much credit for being stupid, but, you know, that the, the cumulative effect of this could potentially be backing us into a situation where we do end up in a conflict with the Iranians. I, I just don't know how much of that the president himself is actually conscious of.
1: Man, do you guys think there's a there will be a point where European allies or others start criticizing us for seemingly going after the Iranian regime you- too hard?
3: You know, I I was just in Europe, and and you get a sense there just this overwhelming frustration with us uh, that we put them in this horrible position where we brought them along for seven years with sanctions and diplomacy to get the Iran deal. That mm-hmm. um, the American government under Barack Obama did that. Now the American government has put their companies in this difficult position where they are having trouble doing business in Iran or have to pull out of Iran. Their European governments are trying to keep this deal alive, and they see Trump and his administration ratcheting this up. You know, I, I agree with Kelly that, that, that what worries me is like Trump probably just cares about the politics of this, right? Uh, you know, doing this favor for BB or telling his own audiences here how hard line he is and how tough he's being on the Iranians and how he's going further than Obama. But Bolton and Pompeo, uh, I think those guys would be, you know, perfectly okay with a war. Um, and, and I think, you know, a year and a half is a long time. They're moving pretty fast. To Kelly's point, this cumulative steps, are accelerating and a year and a half is a long time. And as we talked about before, there's a lot of ways that a conflict can escalate with Iran. I think another point that's worth making here is I don't give a, a dime's worth of value to the bullshit that they spew about supporting the Iranian people and democracy in Iran. You, We had Jason Rezaian in here. You, you, you have Iranian-Americans in here. You have Iranians that you talk to who want Iran to reform, who want to move away from being kind of a terrorist-sponsoring uh, mm-hmm. state, who want better relations with the West. They will consistently tell you— unless they're like the weird MEK guys who pay Rudy Giuliani uh, to speak at their confer- conferences about overthrowing the government in Europe, uh, they will consistently tell you, you want to help the Iranian people? Get rid of the fucking travel ban and yeah. let Iranian middle class people come study in the United States, you know? Even right-wing uh,
1: hawks will say that. Yeah, like Martin this is, this said is insane.
3: That. There's no consistency to to their rhetoric. And so it makes this rhetoric about helping the Iranian people, we're hurting them with sanctions, we're hurting them with the travel ban we're empowering the worst actors in iran uh, by embracing this frame of uh, escalation we're setting back the cause of democracy in iran
2: yeah I, mean, I think this this administration it's very clear that you know pompeo and bolton you know have decided that they're going to do regime change through economic pressure and that that's going to be how you know they change the the regime I just think they have no sense of what comes afterwards. It's not like it's going to be an easy, you know, transition if it ever did happen. I don't even know if it would work. But it's clear to me that they're just throwing all of the eggs, in, you know, against the wall or mm-hmm. whatever. Bad sure. metaphor. But, you know, and just seeing what happens. <laughs> no, that's
3: actually the right that's one. the right yeah, metaphor, Kelly. Yeah. It's not a basket. <laughs> they're just fucking
2: throwing them against the, I can picture
3: John Bolton saying that, just like hurling eggs against the wall. You know?
2: I- yeah, I know. Anyway, it's Easter, right? Almost. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's just there's no – I don't get the sense they've actually thought through the second and third and fourth steps and what comes afterwards. And it reminds me a lot about Iraq. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, leading ourselves into a situation where we had no idea what the outcome would be, you know, once there was regime change in Iraq. And look where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's a lot of deja vu for me in this situation.
1: Agreed. Well, we will watch this closely. And Kelly, thank you so much for joining because literally uh, no one has taught me more about Iran than you have. So thank you for that.
2: I like having the Goon Squad reunited. Yeah. Yes, yeah. there we Personally.
1: go. <laughs> All right, buddy. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Bye, Bye Kelly. Bye. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's com slash crooked world. All right, Ben, the Israelis went to the polls today, and we will soon know whether our best friend Bibi Netanyahu is still in charge of Israel. But, of course, no Israeli election would be complete without a bunch of super fucked up, desperate 11th hour haymakers. So the first one was uh, Netanyahu announcing that he plans to annex settlements in the West Bank. No huge surprise there. His entire party supports that position, but no Israeli Prime Minister has done that yet. But the the Likud party also, it was reported today, apparently hired twelve hundred people to secretly film Arab voters in polling locations. So that is deeply racist. As we were recording this, we don't know Bibi's fate yet, but there is a, a chance that win or lose, uh, he just killed off any hope of a two state solution. So thanks for that, Bibi. Uh what do you make of this election, Ben? What are you looking for?
3: Well, I you know, I I think uh people have to recognize, you know, it's always kind of strange for me to see, like, he'll come out and say he's going to annex the West Bank. And, and people act like, oh, my God, they're shocked. Like, this is what the guy's been doing for 10 years. Mm-hmm. The, the, the settlements they've been building have been a de facto annexation. He's already said there won't be a two-state solution on his watch. Uh, the Golan Heights annexation clearly foreshadowed what they could do in the West Bank. So I'm getting a little tired, frankly, of people, you know, in the media or in politics being like, wow, you know shocking move by Bibi, like no they've been telegraphing this uh for a long time um it's not only the death knell to this two state solution but it's really the p- transition of israel potentially into being an apartheid state uh we should just say it i mean what what else is it uh you, you know when you have millions of palestinians living there without any rights mm-hmm. uh i don't know right. i know this is super controversial language but i what, please tell me what it is if you have millions of people living in your within your borders who have no status, who can't vote, you know, we, we have to to start talking about that reality because that's where this is going. On the filming Arabs uh, voting, uh, again, it, it's, it's like here uh, in the U.S. where, and again, to be fair that I'm not singling Israel out, uh, we've seen these anti-democratic practices around voting and around national identity in a bunch of Western countries. But, like, again, let's kind of not sugarcoat this. I often ta- – you know, the, the standard talking points about the U.S.'s relationship are about our shared democratic values. Like, are those part of our shared values? Like, I'd like the next politician who, you know, stands up at AIPAC and gives a, an homage to, to the shared democratic values to be asked – well, when a bunch of thugs go around, you know, trying to intimidate Arabs by videotaping them as they vote, like, is that? Yeah. What part of the democratic values is that? Phenomenon? It's not particularly democratic.
1: Yeah, I mean, so BB B- B is very good at solving a near-term problem for himself, Political which problem, is in yeah. this case to get elected uh, potentially, and creating a much larger long-term problem. So, if they just annex all of these settlements if they essentially take control over the whole West Bank, that would mean, what, 2.8 million Palestinians yeah. are now part of a greater Israel. You'd have a one-state yeah. solution. Now, the question then becomes, do they have voting rights? Or are they allowed to yeah. participate in politics? And then you get to the point that you made earlier, which is, how is that a democracy?
3: No, and it's just, this is just uncomfortable, But like, because it's 2.8 million Palestinians on top of the uh, you know Arabs who already live in Israel right. who have been somewhat downgraded in recent years. Right, as, by the nation-state law. Yeah, and so people have been trying to point this out for a long time. I remember Obama giving a big speech about this at APEC. intentionally went to APEC saying, you cannot have a Jewish state and a democracy without a two-state solution, because if it's a Jewish state in which uh, Arabs are second-class citizens, that's not going to be a democracy. If you have one state solution that is a democracy, uh, it's not going to be necessarily Jewish in character because you could actually have a Palestinian majority uh, yeah. in those borders. Uh, this is a conundrum. Now, Bibi's whole plan all along, you know, we've always said and I've thought like he wants to get the next election. He makes his alliance to political convenience. But, but maybe this was the goal. I mean, maybe actually the method was that he wants to annex the West Bank and he's on the precipice of doing that. And with the U.S. administration that will back him in anything he wants to do you could see that. What we don't know is what will the Palestinians do? Um, how would they react? Mass nonviolent resistance? Is there a danger of another intifada? You know, there there, there are other actors here other than Bibi and Trump. And it, it could be a very volatile situation. But I do think, as we've talked about, you know, exhaustively on this pod, but importantly, people can't, like, kind of hide under the table on this issue anymore. You know, like, they can't just say well i'm for a two state solution, but we can't pressure Israel, and we share democratic values well, i i don't we don't share values with a country that would have two point eight million people who've been under military occupation and absorbed and denied any rights in that country, and so we need to be having a conversation now about what it means. If that's where this is going,
1: yeah. Interestingly, uh, Pete Buttigieg came out and criticized uh, Netanyahu's announcement about annexing the the settlements. Uh, Beto O'Rourke referred to some of Netanyahu's comments as racist. So I I was, I was, I was hard for that, but then
3: I, I saw some people being like, Whoa, wow, Beto said. What is he if he's not racist? Like, this is the same problem we go with here with Trump. Like, this is a man who trashes Arabs repeatedly, who backs settlers who commit acts of violence against Arabs, who's got people on his behest out videotaping people voting and and people saying, Beto, you know, wow, you, what would you call that? Yeah, you know, yeah, what's pretty, the polite way of, 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 of identifying that?
1: feels pretty clear cut. So we're sitting here. I think polls have closed. We don't know the outcome. Betty yeah. Gantz uh, has been running a, a pretty strong campaign. It's an alternative to the BB Netanyahu. And the way the Israeli political system works is it's wildly <laughs> complicated. Proportional yeah. representation. So you have like, I think, 40 parties are running. They each would need to hit a 3.25% vote share to see, get representation in the Knesset. After that, the parties have to build a coalition so that they can form a government. It's complicated. So we'll know more next week. But, uh, you know, tough way to close out the election, guys.
3: Yeah. And and I will say, you know, like, I, we don't know yet, but you know, Bibi tends to find ways to eke this thing out. Always. And cobble together his coalition. And even if Benny Gans kind of matches him in vote total, like... BB's a survivor for a reason, and it's always because he moves to the right, and uh, I, I'm not sitting here with a lot of optimism. <laughs> yeah, me either. But I am I would be happy to be surprised.
1: I would be too. Yeah. So, okay, turning to Spies in Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. So, on March 30th, a Chinese woman was arrested trying to get into Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> she said she wanted to use the pool. She was carrying... Four cell phones, a bunch of hard drives, mm-hmm. uh, including some loaded with spyware. So, you know, standard uh, pool stuff. You get the, yeah. the blow up donut or whatever yeah. in your spyware. <laughs> uh, it turns out that when investigators went to her hotel room, there was even more gear, including a device that detects hidden cameras with radio waves. That's pretty cool nine USB drives and five SIM cards. I guess a secret service agent put one of those USB sticks into his laptop. That's not the best practice there. Just everybody listening. So Ben, like this person is clearly a foreign spy. Foreign governments are going to run spies at us. That's not Trump's fault. That's going to always happen. But we never really talk about the fact that the president of the United States spends like every weekend at a club where (laughs) any asshole with 200 grand can be a member. It is like such an obvious reliable glaring right. intelligent target like compare mar-a-lago to how hardened the white house is or camp well, david this is why they it's built, crazy this
3: is, say, this is why they built camp david right? right i mean the whole fucking reason to build this <laughs> retreat deep in the desert or not desert deep in the woods of maryland is, is so you can go someplace to would be totally secure and private right and and you've got this club who nearest i can tell has a membership that's a a bunch of trashy rich people, (laughs) grifters, like right-wing suck-ups, and foreign spies. Like, that's who's hanging out at the fucking pool at Mar-a-Lago, you know? Like, I I don't know, when I go on vacation, like, I'd like to be around some, you know, interesting, like-minded people, Uh, generally not around a bunch of fucking, like, right-wing hucksters and and foreign spies. You don't
1: want the editor of Newsmax to have dinner uh, with you every night or whatever, right-wing outlet?
3: Well, there were these pictures of Trump, like, having meetings about, like, North Korea in, like, Uh, the dining room, right? That was my favorite there's all these like so these aging people with like cell phone cameras like you think they're not recording devices on some of those things and you think they're not some foreign spies in there so this is insofar as people knowing what's going on with Donald Trump or penetrating our systems this is a Pretty brinking red yeah, light, yeah. You know? Like we, we caught the one spy
1: dumb enough to carry seven USB sticks and ask where the pool is. Yeah. There's got to be four hundred more that got exactly. through. Exactly, and because the Secret Service isn't isn't protecting the infrastructure well, there. That's not their job.
3: Yeah, and guess what? The Chinese aren't always sending people who are Chinese. You know, right. like they probably have some right wing grifters on their payroll. And so, well, I, I don't know that for sure, but I'm just saying that they they have other people that they can have do this. The important thing is, as much as we cover these issues in a news cycle way, if you stack this with the security clearance thing, right? Mm-hmm. So they're giving security clearances to people who are, have been deemed to be potential risks right. by our own government. Very serious risks you know, in some cases. Yeah. They've got people hanging out at Mar-a-Lago. Who knows how compromised in the last two years our national security uh, information has been? Like, God only knows Like, what what penetrations have been into systems or... Uh, what what secrets have been shared. That should really worry people. Yeah,
1: it really worries people. Uh, another quick just note on personnel and best practices. So a reminder that we now have an acting secretary of defense. This week Trump purged basically the entire leadership team at the Department of Homeland Security. It's kind of like, scary. Including it? the secret service director. I <laughs> yeah. guess he just had to shit everybody down until yeah. he got to the, the person he wanted to make the acting head. So we also have an acting secretary of the interior, acting SBA administrator, acting chief of staff. So I just want to note, like, There is a cost, especially in foreign policy world, to staffing the government that way. So like enacting SecDef is going to be treated differently yes. by a foreign leader than yes. your handpicked hand-picked guy. A, a full-time chief of staff can recruit a better team to work for him or her. They, they are hamstringing themselves. And again, it's the thing we don't really talk about.
3: They're hamstringing themselves. And like you say, a secretary of defense who's acting, who's just some Boeing lobbyist, um, <laughs> is not going to be taken seriously by other people around the world. He's just not. Nobody's going to think he speaks to the president. Nobody knows if he's going to be around. But importantly, Tommy, there might be a method to this. So Kelly referenced that the Defense Department was against the designation of the right. IRGC. We've known in a lot of these interagency debates, the Defense Department has been against what Trump wants to do because what Trump wants to do is usually stupid, and they would potentially pay for it. And maybe they want a weak voice at the table mm-hmm. because I can guarantee you that when they had the meeting on the RGC designation and, and Bolton and Pompeo came into that meeting loaded for bear and the Secretary of Defense has to come make the case against it, and he's just some Boeing lobbyist instead of Jim Mattis. Right. Uh, that's a big change. So they may want not just Trump, but people like Bolton and Pompeo to kind of le- leave this hanging. I think that's hugely responsible, given that we've got thousands of troops at war uh, in harm's way. We've got you know, millions of people that <laughs> work for the Pentagon. It shows a fundamental disregard for this military that Trump likes to wrap himself in.
1: Yeah. President of Egypt came to Washington today. President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi showed up in the Oval Office as he's proposing some uh, constitutional changes that would undercut the judiciary, expand military control over the government. And, you know, I guess that's probably Trump's wish list as well. It has been six years since Sisi deposed Mohamed Morsi in a coup in the name of stability. Uh, Unfortunately, things have just gotten worse, not better. Uh, It has not stopped him from locking up protesters, activists, including some American citizens who are in jail right now. Okay. Egypt's an important relationship. They have been you know, the cornerstone of critical diplomatic work over the years. Uh, it's an important military alliance. All that stipulated. Do you think Trump should have taken this meeting?
3: No. I mean, and you don't have to. And it's not like we have some urgent pressing matter of business with Egypt. And frankly, I think we got it wrong. We should have called it a coup when he had a coup. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we'd also kind of iced the guy. And, and put some limits on what we did with them. But all, all that said, I, I don't think you do this. It sends a message. I mean, not that there needed to be another message sent uh, from Trump, but it sends a message that we just don't care about these issues. And, and I'll be honest, like, even if CC's somewhat, you know, he's going to be around, you can still make a difference, at least around the margins, and mm-hmm. getting certain people out of prison or getting the worst laws rolled back. Like, right. there is such a thing as unsatisfactory, but you know, still relevant human rights progress by using some pressure. Um, and it, it looks like they just don't care at all. And so he's for, – for them to do this meeting as he's changing the constitution, as he's kind of increasing his iron fist rule of Egypt, uh, it, it, it sends this kind of more chilling message, the same one we sent with Mohammed Salman, that, that not only do we not have concerns about this, we're, we're validating, we're actively validating mm-hmm. this repression. And again, in addition to just how bad that is for activists and, and democracy supporters around the world, it makes us look completely full of shit in Venezuela and Cuba when the, these only two countries in the world where we care about or we say we care about these issues, who's going to believe that uh, when he's sitting there with CC giving him a foot rub?
1: It also just reminds me that every time a democratically elected leader comes to town, whether it's or Theresa May or whether Trump goes yeah. to Europe or whether it's Macron or Justin Trudeau, it results in some pissing match. Yeah. Every time some yeah. authoritarian yeah. strongman like CC comes, it's it, it's all love in the Oval Office.
3: Just think about that, like how backwards that is. So yeah. weird. Yeah. Well, don't like it. Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> like it. It makes me sad.
1: So, Ben, let's go to Sudan for a minute. So there have been protesters holding sit-ins for several nights in a row to call for the resignation of President Omar al-Bashir, uh, a reminder that Bashir is just a world-class asshole. He is the first sitting president to be indicted by the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide in, in Darfur. So last night, uh, security services reportedly fired live ammunition to break up the protests. There were some other reports that more rank-and-file military members were protecting them, so that was an interesting dynamic but what's happening in Sudan does seem to dovetail with our conversation last week about protests mm-hmm. in Algeria calling for President Bouteflika's resignation. They seem materially different than what's happening in Libya, where there's a warlord yep. fighting the UN-backed government. I'm just curious if you had thoughts on what you're seeing in Sudan or Libya.
3: Well, I think, you know. first of all, in Sudan, it is pent-up frustration with uh, an awful, corrupt, repressive government somewhat similar to Algeria. The circumstances are a little different in that Algeria was prompted by this election and the the weekend of Bernie's nature of the, <laughs> the leader. But there are commonalities there. In Libya, what we have is essentially the factionalism there that has been grinding away for years is coming to a boil where you have this strongman, Haftar, who's kind of controlled Eastern Libya and Benghazi. He's kind of backed by Sisi and and the Gulf states and kind of Trying to root out some of the Islamists in Benghazi, and he's essentially, in, you know, invading <laughs> Tripoli yeah. uh, and see uh, over the objections of the United States government. By the way, uh, Trump probably hasn't figured out yet no, no uh, that his friends are all backing Haftar. Um, but over the United Nations and Europe, um, I, I do th- think what it does say, though, to Sisi, particularly Sudan and Algeria, again, Sisi looks pretty good. It looks pretty entrenched. So did Bouteflika two years ago. So did Bashir. Couple of years ago, um, these things can boil over if you are corrupt and you are authoritarian. Even though right now, in this moment today, that the trendy thing to say is, "Oh, the strongman is ascendant." You know, Bolsonaro and Trump and Duterte and Putin, blah blah. blah. You know, the pot you know takes a while to boil over, and uh, I think it's a message to us, and frankly, hopefully, a message to activists around the world that things can change very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, CC. Whether or not he's still there five years from now, 10 years from now, you know, I think is an open question, particularly if he keeps this restrictive rule uh, in place.
1: So this conversation feels familiar. It could be 2011, 12, 13, and the initial Arab Spring. You know, obviously, the response then was all-consuming, right? I mean, was it 16 days of protests in Egypt before uh, they they finally forced the resignation of Mubarak? You know, it was an all-consuming thing for the White House— President Obama was constantly going out and giving speeches about yeah. you know, universal values and, and backing the protesters. Knowing what you know now, and you see these these protests in, in Sudan and Algeria and, to a weirder extent, Libya, do you think there's a role for the U.S. to play in terms of how we're talking about this or supporting people, you know, looking for a better life through protests and democracy?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, wh- one of the things that's interesting is—, is um, Part of the reason why there was such an interest in, you know, what we were going to say, what Obama was going to say, really, in 2011, is that that was new, right? That, Mm -hmm. you know, now people are kind of numb to this. But also because people just assumed that Obama gave a shit,
2: right? Very good point.
3: Uh, And this is actually an important point. Like, nobody thinks that Trump cares about these protesters. No. So nobody even – like, let's say they had a press briefing in the White House, which they don't. Nobody would, I think, even ask because, like, nobody – thinks that they care right and i think that's sad i think the american president uniquely in the world has been a figure that gives voice to imperfectly and hypocritically at times but if we're not speaking up for human rights if we're not speaking up for democratic change um, there's not many other voices out there i mean maybe occasionally a european leader so i do think there's a role to speak out i think speaking out you know, with humility is important, um in a way that, that recognizes that we can't dictate outcomes and we can't control what happens. But I, I I think, you know, being on the side in terms of the things we say of people who are at least trying to bring about change and it could be even more incremental change is important. I also think, frankly, we need to consider in this day and age, how do we have a set of policies that is able in the long term to support civil society and support mm-hmm. the development uh you know a better discourse uh within and between countries you know the the old tool book used to be that we funded opposition parties right. um and as much as i can see why the the autocrats have kind of figured out that strategy and they just <laughs> shut down those parties and cut off that funding I think you might want to look at, well, because we should still be trying to support the development of civil society, hopefully by working with governments uh, to invest in institution building. But if not, like maybe regional approaches where we're connecting activists from, uh, you know, at kind of hubs in different parts of a region uh, so they can share strategies we want to support. People aren't even political, but maybe entrepreneurs who are change makers in society. We want to support women's rights and participation in politics. You know, we should be trying to find new ways not to overthrow governments, but to empower people. Uh, not so much to bring about these moments, only the people in the countries can, but to create a better basis <clears> that when these moments happen, you know know what what they 're doing, right. you know people have right. institutions that they can channel their energies through, or people have a discourse that has already been more open so there's the short game where I do think you have to speak out for these things, and the longer game is I think we as a country need to think about how do we promote and advance democracy in in different ways, frankly than we have in the in the post Cold War years because the autocrats figured out how to stamp out those those yeah. ways
1: yeah, turn to Europe for one minute, so the u k Parliament passed a bill that prevents a no deal or a hard Brexit, I believe. Yeah. So that means they can't leave the European Union without all the details ironed out. It means the people won't feel screwed. There yeah. won't be runs on medicine. The parliament then approved Prime Minister May's decision to see an extension. Right. So it looks like they punted this thing down the road again. There's a whole bunch of wrangling happening at the EU about Brexit. So yeah. I'm never again going to ask you what's going to happen. I, my only question today is, do we have a sense of when these guys might figure it all the hell out?
3: No, and but I think one of the things that will be interesting to watch. So the one new point I'd make from our discussions about this in the past: the Brits cannot figure this out, and I don't see how they're going to. You know, they, they don't want a no deal Brexit, but there's no Brexit that can get past Parliament at a certain. So they're just punning and getting extensions. And I think at a certain point, the Europeans, the timeline question shifts out of the British Parliament and just to Europe. How long is Europe going to tolerate this uncertainty? Uh, For now, Europe is saying better to extend it and see if we can work something out because they don't want a no-deal Brexit. But at a certain point, uh, I think this timeline question shifts to European politicians. And whether you're going to get the 27 leaders of the EU to continue to give the British uh, all this time and space that is being used to just argue with each other, I think that time could run out sooner than the Brits think. Yeah. So we'll go obviously a few more months here, but I think actually at a certain point when the inability of uh, Britain to do anything becomes clear, continues to be clear, that ultimately the final decision might actually be made by continental Europeans.
1: Speaking of Europeans, you were just in Berlin with Obama. Yes. How was it? W- w- did we learn anything cool? What Were they up <laughs> to over there?
3: I think what was cool about it, I mean, he saw Angela Merkel, um, who's still hanging on, and like, look, part of what she's trying to do is is before she passes the baton, she's trying to manage this Brexit <laughs> situation Ugh, too. No um, but the uh, you know we've talked here; they've got their far right problem. There are a couple interesting things that, that I uh, that struck me though. One is we had uh, all these activists in parliamentarians and politicians from across Europe come together for this meeting with Obama. And then I met with a bunch of them uh, separately. And what I'm struck by is how similar the energy is to here and yeah. that you do have this real renewed sense of activism from younger people who are just fed up and tired cool. of the political elite. And, and they're getting into politics themselves and they're shaking things up. And I met everybody from like a, an amazing Afghan woman who's become a a refugee advocate has an organization. To you know, an amazing young parliamentarian from uh, Macron's party. Uh, a woman in Switzerland who's beating back far right ballot initiatives almost you know single handedly with her organization. Young people are really filling the space that need to be filled in European politics, and that that was kind of inspiring. And I think it could be interesting over time, you know, world those out there um, mm-hmm. <laughs> for like the American progressive movement that has been building to kind of build some contacts and ties across yeah, yeah. the Atlantic. Because frankly, as we talked about here, Bannon's doing that. The sure right wing yeah. is well, well-networked across the Atlantic. And the second thing I notice is there's similar debates happening there. So in some of these countries, like we were in Germany, the number two party in the polls in Germany after Merkel's party is not the traditional center-left party of Social Democrats. It's the Greens. Hmm. I met this guy who's the leader of the green Party in in the Netherlands, you know really remarkable young talented politician. They just picked up an historic number of seats. Um, some of that is the the kind of left center left argument we're having the Democratic Party here, uh, and some of that is just how much people care about issues like climate uh, mm-hmm. in europe um, so Interestingly, you know, they're going through the very similar, very familiar process here where there's a much more energized left that is in the process of figuring out what it is and how they can both win elections and, and what they should stand for.
1: Well, that is a great hopeful note to end it yeah, on.
3: Yeah, I, I I left more hopeful than I went, which That's is nice. not always the case.
1: Yeah, yeah, not always the case with this show either. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But stick around because when we come back, my interview with Patrick radden Keith about his new book, book, Amazing book. Say Nothing – I learned more about the troubles in the IRA and Northern Ireland's history than I knew previously in my life. So check it out.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it
2: all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
0: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories
1: On the line is Patrick Braddon He's a New Yorker staff writer and the author of an incredible new book about a notorious murder in Northern Ireland, the IRA and its consequences. The book is called Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland. Patrick, thank you for doing the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so anyone uh, who follows me on Twitter knows that I read your book in less than a week and I've been annoying about how much I like it. So, truly, congratulations. It's like, it is an incredible piece of work. First Thank question you. for you, who is Jean McConville, and how did you learn about her story?
4: So, Jean McConville was not a name I knew until about five years ago, um, five, six years ago. She was, but it's, it's quite a well-known name in Northern Ireland. She was a woman who was a mother of 10 and a widow in Belfast in 1972 when one night she was in her apartment in a housing complex in West Belfast and a gang of masked intruders barged into the apartment and pulled her out, dragged her out um, with her kids clinging to her legs and told the kids, you know, we just need to take her away for a few hours. We'll bring her back. But they never did. She disappeared. And so she became kind of an iconic victim in The Troubles, this woman who disappeared. And, you know, in, in vanishing like that, you had 10 kids who were orphaned.
1: Yeah. So I'll be honest. Like, like you, we both grew up in the Boston area, so I had a lot of Irish friends. I had heard of the IRA. I had heard of the Good Friday Agreement. But I honestly did not know anything about the genesis of the conflict, how brutally violent it was. Can you give us a bit of a one-on-one on the troubles? Like, who were the major players, and how did it start, and, and how bad did things get?
4: Yeah. You know, it's a tricky story, right? Because there's this question of where do you start? Um, right. My kind of somewhat humorous illustration of this is in one of the memoirs that Jerry Adams has published. He's got this, you know, he's got like a timeline, as you'll sometimes see in a memoir, and his timeline starts like almost a thousand years ago. Oh, good. You got to go back to the beginning of the conflict. Basically, in, in the 1920s, you get the Irish War for Independence and the establishment of what we today call Ireland, which is the Republic of Ireland. And when that happened, the island of Ireland is partitioned and there's, there's six counties that remain under British dominion. They remain part of the United Kingdom. And for decades there was a fair amount of discrimination against Catholics in Northern Ireland. Catholics were a minority in Northern Ireland. And there were these tensions that kind of simmered and they, they finally came to a boil in the late 1960s. And so when we talk about the Troubles It's a period of time really starting in 1968, 1969, in which you had a a conflict, a violent conflict that lasted for three decades. And the the players were the IRA and Irish Republican groups, which were paramilitary groups that wanted to drive the British out of Ireland once and for all, loyalist paramilitary groups. And so these would be loyal to the British crown, um, primarily Protestant groups the police who were not really perceived necessarily as a neutral force, um, but were largely Protestant and uh, also not always necessarily following the law themselves. And then the British Army, which comes in pretty early and is is essentially dealing with kind of multi-vector insurgency, and then there are also a lot of excesses by the British Army. So you have all of these different parties really at war, in the streets by 1971. And, you know, the the violence kind of um, waxed and waned over the course of three decades, but it was, it was really a, an undeclared war yeah. uh, right until 1998 when the conflict ends.
1: And the reason I love the book so much is I learned so much about The Troubles, but I did it through the window of, you know, these real individuals who you track throughout and their lives weave together in really un- unbelievable and fascinating ways. I don't want to give away anything because the ending is so fun. I want to let people find it themselves. But that's why the book is cool, because it's this great narrative, but you actually learn a ton about the troubles. So, fasting forward a little bit. So, the Good Friday Agreement is negotiated in 1998, I believe. How much has Northern Ireland healed and integrated since that agreement?
4: Well, this is one of the things, as an American and even an Irish-American guy from Boston that was really startling for me as i got into this and it took me it took me 4 years all in to do the it started as a new york article and then the book and and i made 7 trips over to northern ireland and this was one of the this was the the steepest part of my learning curve early on was that I think my ambient sense of the Good Friday Agreement in 98 had been, this is this landmark peace deal, they improbably end this long-running, grinding conflict in Europe. And I I sort of thought everything was coming up roses. Mm -hmm. And you get over there and you realize the divisions are incredibly stark. You still have literally these huge walls, they call them peace walls, that separate different communities in Northern Ireland. There's amazing tension really everywhere between these communities. 90% of school children in Northern Ireland go to segregated schools, schools that are segregated by religion. So on the one hand, there's peace, and, and we should celebrate that. On the other hand, when you actually get over there and you, you get out into these communities, you realize it's an incredibly brittle, fragile peace. And that was part of what I was trying to do in the book is, you know as you say, I, was, I sort of wanted to approach it not as a history book, but almost more like the way you would with a novel in that I wanted to tell the story of a handful of people. And you would see the conflict through their eyes and their lives and see how they experienced it. But one thing that was true for all of those characters was that the past over there is not the past, right? It's the present. I mean, on the one hand, the conflict is over. On the other hand, everybody, every day is surrounded by... the the kind of resonance and the tensions and the trauma of that past
1: in a very real way. Yeah. I mean, tell me if this is a bad comparison, but as I read the book, I couldn't help but think about and compare Northern Ireland to, say, Gaza and the walls you talked about and the response to occupation there. And then it also made me think about how depressingly widespread sectarianism is and how, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, uh, it's constantly talked about as a Sunni Shia problem or a Muslim problem. And, you know, clearly there's a very different example in, in uh, Christianity happening in Northern Ireland. Like, is there something universal in the story of Northern Ireland that came to you or am I just making no, this up? No, I'm,
4: I'm so glad to hear you say that, to be honest with you, because this was a thing I – it was a dilemma in the writing of the book was that I kept feeling these echoes of other places and times, but I also felt as though I wanted to keep the the aperture pretty tightly. I, I wanted to focus pretty tightly on this. I didn't want to keep breaking out and giving you comparative examples. But believe me, I mean, whether it's Gaza or... I spent a lot of time as I was working on the book talking with um, my colleague at The New Yorker, Philip Gorevich, who's written about Rwanda, mm-hmm. you know, another community in which you had people who were, who were really at war and then the conflict ends, but you still live across the street from the person you used to be at war with. Right. I mean, I also thought a lot about... Um, you know The book is very much about radicalization about the sort of the process through which a young person becomes kind of drunk on their own righteousness and, yeah. and gets absorbed into a cause and and starts to do terrible things in yeah. the name of that cause. And so to the extent that you read the book and it feels like a specific story, but you can you can feel those echoes I'm really glad because I deliberately didn't keep breaking out in the book and saying, which is like this other conflict in this other place in this other time. But I certainly I certainly heard those the yeah. harmonies along the way
1: myself. I mean, you, you mentioned Rwanda and living across the street from the person you were fighting. In Northern Ireland, I mean, so many of these IRA militants went on to be political leaders. I mean, you document in great detail in the book how Jerry Adams, who's, I guess, arguably the most famous IRA leader, was an operational leader. He was directing people to kill. Does it surprise you that he was ultimately welcomed into the Oval Office by Bill Clinton?
4: Yeah, this to me is one of the big ironies here, and it's one of the kind of inescapable complexities of this story is that Jerry Adams is a guy who I think I pretty, you know, if Jerry Adams were were with us on this podcast today, he would tell us with a straight face that he was never in the IRA. Of course, nobody believes that. You know, he's always claimed that he was just part of the political wing, Sinn Féin. I think I document uh, pretty substantially in the book that this is a guy who ordered war crimes. He was an operational figure in the IRA. Yet I would also tell you that I think it took real vision on the part of Bill Clinton to give him a visa and have him come to New York. And not only that, but there's a strange sense in which the BS story that Jerry Adams has always told about his own past in the IRA created a kind of political space in which when the peace process starts starts up, people like George Mitchell and Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and others could negotiate with Jerry Adams, and they had a kind of rhetorical cover, right, in which they could say, well, I'm not negotiating with terrorists, I'm negotiating with Jerry Adams, and he was never in the IRA. Right. But it was understood that Adams could bring the IRA along. So I don't think there are easy answers here, and, and I certainly in the book didn't want to, you know, there aren't a lot of um, uncomplicated heroes. But I think one of the ironies with it, with somebody like Adams is that you're absolutely right. I mean he's I, I think there's there's no way to look at the evidence and not think that this is a guy who ordered war crimes and terrorist attacks, but also see that he ends up playing a, a really significant part. In ending this conflict.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is also remarkable how many Americans openly supported the IRA. For example, yeah. Peter King, a Republican congressman from New York who was on the Homeland Security Committee, <laughs> he attended a pro IRA rally in the early 80s and he said, We must pledge ourselves to support those brave men and women who, at this very moment, are carrying forth the struggle against British imperialism in the streets of Belfast and Derry. End quote. Can you imagine? If Rashida Tlaib, a congresswoman who's Palestinian, said that about Hamas, you know, it's like I I think clearly race and religion play a huge role in this. But like, how did it become acceptable for people in Long Island, for example, to support a a terrorist group?
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, some of this, I think, is just pure tribalism, right? And there's there's something like 30 million Irish Americans. There's way more Irish Americans than there are people in Ireland. Hmm. And there has long been a strain among Irish Americans of support for the IRA, even during the worst years of the Troubles. When you push into it, it gets a little weird, right? When I was growing up in Dorchester in Boston, in the bar down the street from my house, they used to pass the hat for the IRA. Hmm. When you go over to Northern Ireland, what's what's weird about this, right, is that it's kind of easy from the safe distance of Boston to give money to pay for bombs They're going to be planted in public places where there's no danger that your kids are going to, like, get caught because they happen to be at the shopping center on the wrong day. And there were other strange dissonances. I mean, one of the weird things about the 1980s is that a lot of the people raising money, and these would be Peter King's constituents in some instances, are, like, Irish-American, wealthy Irish-American guys in construction who are all Republicans, like, conservative Republicans during the Reagan years. And in the book, I describe some of the meetings they would have with actual guys who work for the Provisional IRA. And the Provisional IRA, they thought of themselves as socialist revolutionaries,
3: mm-hmm.
4: right? So you get these weird and these weird moments where these guys actually start talking about what they want, and the uh, the American donors who are are paying for the bombs say, "Wait a second, you're." You're a socialist, yeah. So I think sometimes they had less common ground than they, they thought they did. But it is a, a strange thing, and I'll tell you, even to this day, Jerry Adams. You know, the, the IRA now, uh, the, the Sinn Fein is now a, a legitimate political party in in Ireland. Um, Jerry Adams is a famous, kind of legitimate political figure at this point. But they still come over every year and have a big uh, banquet at the Sheridan in New York. I've been to it, and they'll raise like four hundred thousand dollars in an evening from Irish Americans who are, are eager to give them money.
1: Wow. You wrote this great piece for the New York Times recently about Brexit and how that agreement, or read right at the moment, I guess, lack of an agreement, how the vote could reignite the troubles in Northern Ireland. Can you explain that? How is the, the Ireland-Northern Ireland border related to Brexit?
4: So... During the Troubles, the border was a real hard border. It was a symbol of that conflict. You had sandbags, you had gun towers. You know, if you wanted to cross, you'd have to show ID. If if there was a bus, you'd get British soldiers who who would board the bus and search it. The border was a real symbol of the conflict. And if you think about it, if you were in the IRA, part of what you were fighting a war for was to erase that border. You wanted to reunify Ireland. And with the Good Friday Agreement, the border essentially disappears. You can now drive from the Republic of Ireland into Northern Ireland, and you cannot even know. The only way you know that you've crossed the border is that it changes from miles to kilometers. And you know if you're looking at your cell phone, the service changes that you get. Other than that, you wouldn't even know that you'd cross the border. And that's been great for peace. It's been great for the economy. The insane thing about Brexit, I mean one of the many insane things, but I think a contender for the most insane thing about Brexit, is that nobody when they were designing the Leave campaign thought about the idea that if the UK leaves the EU, then that border, which had essentially disappeared in recent decades, is going to have to be reinscribed, right? It will become the only land border between the UK and Europe and that's been a big sticking point i mean you know once they realized that that you could jeopardize the peace in northern ireland to say nothing of the economy that became a big sticking point in the negotiations and it's, it's really one of the biggest stumbling blocks is what do we do about this idea that if you are going to leave how do we deal with the border we have to have some kind of customs checks but nobody wants to redraw that border and Theresa May has no good answer for this, nobody in London has a good answer for this, and there's a very real prospect, depending on how Brexit goes, I mean right now, as of the moment that you and I are having this conversation, it could be that that the UK crashes out of the EU without any kind of deal about how they're going to do it on April 12th, if they can't postpone it or avoid it between now and then. And if that happens, they're going to have to redraw that border, and if they redraw the border. I think there's a very good chance that you're going to receive a return of some violence, not the full-blown violence of the Troubles, um, but that those tensions that I was talking about are going to boil up once again. Mm,
1: great. Great work, everybody over in the UK.
4: Yeah, seriously.
1: My last question for you, how do you go about writing a book like this? I mean, you said you, you spent four years working on it, but you're able to you know, write this narrative where we know what people are doing and actually thinking and saying in these moments over the course of so many years. Like, how do you get into all these characters' heads and and a true accounting of their lives?
4: It's tricky. I mean, it takes a lot of legwork, particularly when you're writing about people who either won't talk to you or are dead. (laughs) Um, And I knew from the beginning that I wanted to have the story feel intimate so that you, you could really really see these experiences through the eyes of the participants. But I honestly I do in in my in my day job, I do this kind of thing a fair amount. At the New Yorker I do what we call write arounds where you mm-hmm. don't have access to the central figure. And so a lot of it is just legwork. It's, you know, did they give interviews to other people? Did they are there unpublished letters that you can get? Are there friends of theirs who you can talk to and try and make it as vivid as possible? So the trick for me with this book was I wanted to write something that was both really well-documented and, and entirely factual, but that in your hand would read pretty quickly. That right. you'd, you know, you'd, you'd sort of, um, it would be absorbing enough as a narrative that you didn't feel like you were having to slog through a lot of un, unnecessary exposition or uh, an encyclopedic history. And, you know, I mean, that's the struggle with this kind of writing. But the useful thing in this case was the characters are so outsized I mean, whether it's Dolores Price or Jerry Adams or this guy, Brendan Hughes, is another big figure in the book. I mean, these people had extraordinary, very dramatic lives and they clashed with each other. And so there's there's a lot of conflict and there's a way in which you can kind of tell the story of this history through the braided stories of these individuals. And you know, I hope I pulled it off. But but that was the that was the ambition.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd say you pulled it off. This is the uh, Jerry Adams has a cold uh, version of, uh, of the <laughs> yeah, book. Exactly. If you haven't read Frank Sinatra <laughs> has a cold, everyone should check that out. The book is "Say Nothing: A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland." I couldn't recommend it more. It's just a, a hell of a fun read, and I learned so much about uh, Northern Ireland. Patrick, thank you so much for doing the show, and uh, go Boston Celtics, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That's it for Pod of the World. Thank you guys for listening. Rate and review us. And uh, that's all we got. It's time to go home. Let's do it. Enough recording. Yeah. <laughs> Bye.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves.
2: Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync,
0: things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style.